a wise guy, eh? He sure is. He's Gene McCaffrey, the fantasy baseball wise guy. And we'll analyze 50 players in 60 minutes with Gene next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way. Because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August 25th. It's show number 34 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday show for you. We'll be talking with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, about the sustainability of some unexpectedly good seasons, a look at some players who could be next year's, last year's bums, and much more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at Michael Conforto, Cody Bellinger, Alex Wood and more players and from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at injuries to Jackie Bradley Jr., Danny Salazar, Andrew Miller, Miguel Sano, and even a little good news. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our playing time comment, Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at the potential call-ups of Ronald Acuna and J.P. Crawford. In our frequent flyers commentary, analyst Alex Becky looks at Boston outfielder Bryce Brents and Cubs relief pitcher Dylan Maples. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Aaron Nola, Zach Davies, and other pitchers coming up this weekend. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about moving the decimals late in the season. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The dog days are almost over, and the stretch is about to begin. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here, heading down toward the end of the season. Aren't we just uh, headed for the stretch? And uh, the New York Mets won't be a part of the stretch action, I shouldn't think. And uh, they had some bad news. Their outfielder Michael Conforto, who had been playing really well, dislocated his shoulder while he was swinging at a pitch on Thursday. Uh, baseball HQ analyst Phil Hertz was on the story for playing time today. Uh, Mets manager Terry Collins says he doesn't know if Conforto's going to play again this season, but Nick, I have to say, given the state of the Mets, uh, they're not going anywhere. You'd have to wonder why they'd put him back on the field, even if it was possible. So how do you think the news does affect our valuation of Michael Conforto for next year? Well, you know, uh, at this point, we haven't completely zeroed out Conforto. We need confirmation that the shoulder injury will actually end his season. But, you know, this year, if Conforto's had a bit of a breakout this year, his overall numbers have established him as a very solid, uh, if not a very good, uh, Major League Baseball outfielder. And despite a couple of extended dry spells, XBA in June was only 217. He uh, compiled a 278 expected batting average, an elite 166 PX, began to show the kind of thing that we, we thought he would show at the beginning of last season before he went into kind of an extended slump. Um so assuming there are no long-term effects from the shoulder injury, he could be uh, near the top of our outfield list for, for 2018. Uh, what, the only question I would have, and the reason I might downgrade him a little bit going into 2018, that, that dislocation happened on a swing. Uh, I have a brother who's got a shoulder situation, and it, it goes out on him frequently. 
so you've got to wonder, is this going to be something that he's going to worry about mentally as he goes into next year? Is it going to be something that's going to reoccur? Just a couple of questions I would think to keep in mind. Yeah, and even beyond the mental uh, the mental issue, there's the physical issue that, like you said, if he if he did this, uh, caused this uh, dislocation just by swinging a bat, that's what he does for a living, and and swinging a bat very hard is is how he creates value for fantasy players. And uh, you know, like you said, once you once you have a shoulder issue like that, it tends to recur, especially when you're doing the thing that you were doing when it happened the first time. Right. So I think that would be a bit of a concern, I think, going into 2018. I don't think I'd downgrade him just yet because of that, but I don't think I'd pay top dollar for him either. And of course, the other worry I have with him is manager Terry Collins just doesn't seem to like this guy. And, and uh, he's been in and out of the doghouse, been sent down for no reason to Las Vegas. A lot of Mets fans are really angry with the way that Terry Collins handles the situation. And I know it, we shouldn't really put that much weight on something like that but you have to because terry collins is the guy who decides a if conforto plays b when conforto plays and c in what role conforto plays batting first sixth fourth seventh these things matter they do they do matter a lot and you know if conforto was hitting he was for a while hitting at the top of the lineup and you sat there and wondered why is the guy who's got the most power on the mets hitting at the top of the lineup and then you know so it's those kind of things that make a big difference had he been in a in uh, the number four spot uh, earlier than he than he than the last few weeks before Jay Bruce was traded, might have racked up a whole lot more RBIs. Meanwhile, of course, the Mets still have to play out the string, and we have to follow along. And uh, the interest for fantasy players is who's going to get the playing time in the Mets outfield, especially with uh, Curtis Granderson also having been traded out. There's certainly some questions. Juan Ligares and Brandon Nimmo are likely to uh, be out there most days for the Mets. Uh, both were talked about in an August 20th playing time today item on the Mets outfield after Curtis Granderson was traded. So uh, those two guys are likely to get most of the playing time. Uh, the Mets are also likely to call up someone from AAA Las Vegas. Uh, two possibilities are 28-year-old minor leaguer Travis Travis Tigeron and a recently acquired Travis Snyder. Uh, Tigeron has 25 homers, a 9-10 OPS this season, and in 2016, 19 homers and 884 OPS. He is, however, considered to be a defensive liability, which may be why we haven't seen those offensive numbers in the majors uh, before now. Uh, Snyder is a top prospect who has never quite panned out. Uh, became a journeyman uh, after not working out. Hasn't played in the majors since 2015. Uh, become a bit of a minor league nomad over the past couple of seasons. Yeah, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in either of those guys. Uh, they may want to take a longer look at Tyron, but uh, Travis Snyder certainly doesn't look like uh, he's going to be an impact player for fantasy purposes because really he never has been quite a disappointing career from that point of view. I remember Travis Snyder as a hot prospect rookie in my uh, American League only home league that I used to play in. Boy, oh boy, everybody in my in my league wanted Travis Snyder. They were pitching trades and trying to get a hold of Travis Snyder, and of course it never just worked out. Uh, Nick, in a while during my feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey, I'm going to ask Gene about Dodgers sensation Cody Bellinger uh, as far as his prospects for maintaining next year what he's done this year. But meanwhile, he's on the DL right now with an ankle injury. Our American League analyst, Jock Thompson, also covers the Dodgers for BaseballHQ.com, and he was on this story for playing time today. What are the ramifications for the Dodgers playing time with Cody Bellinger on the shelf? Well, hopefully not very serious for fantasy owners or for the Dodgers. The ankle injury is a mild sprain. Uh, they weren't even sure he was going to have to go on the DL, and he shouldn't miss much more than the minimum. So uh, hopefully Bellinger will be back by the by the end of this week. 
uh, or the beginning of next week. Uh, while he's gone, we'll probably Adrian Gonzalez is going to get a few more at bats at first base before he goes back into a bench pinch hitting part time role. Uh, he has he's been there this week and has not done real well. Although did uh, did manage a homer I think on Thursday night. Made one nice fielding play that I saw too. It's good to see. Uh, it's good to see Adrian Gonzalez back in the big leagues. But I think he's definitely going to be watching more than playing uh, for the balance of the season as the Dodgers chase all kinds of uh, season records. At the same time, the Dodgers put right-handed pitcher Alex Wood back on the DL with a shoulder issue. This sounds way more serious to me than Bellinger's ankle problem. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, the the injury, just, just the injury itself, is more serious in that there, there's been some loss in velocity for Alex Wood, and the dominance that he's had during the season has gone down, too. So uh, there's no timetable for his return, which is a little bit ominous. And the other thing to remember is this is a guy who's been kind of chronically injured. So uh, I, I'm sure the Dodgers will not try to rush him back unless they unless they absolutely have to. Yeah, he has been injured multiple times this year. He does seem a bit fragile. Even if he does come back, I wonder if they'll baby him along so we might expect to have uh, a certain amount of uh, loss of possible wins, uh, 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 cut, cutting down on his actual number of starts. There's a lot of issues here. None of them look too good for Alex Wood. How will the Dodgers fill the innings? Yeah, you know, talking about Alex Wood, you know, I could even see as a manager, if he if he's back and ready, say, the last two weeks in September, as big a lead as the Dodgers have, you might not even put him back out there until the postseason. So something certainly for fantasy owners to think about that in terms of uh, maybe not having Alex Wood available for for a good a good while and maybe not till the end of the season. Filling the filling the innings, and that's some good news on that front for the Dodgers and for fantasy owners. Um, they've got multiple guys on the DL, but luckily they're not going to be there much, much longer. Uh, Hugh Darvish has been on the DL with a sore lower back. He is expected to be activated this coming Sunday against Milwaukee. Uh, Brandon McCarthy's been out with a blister problem. He's expected to start rehab in a few days. And, of course, the big news is that Clayton Kershaw has been out with a hip problem, is shooting for a September 1st return. So with all of those guys coming back into the rotation and the Dodgers have an off day next Monday, they might need only one start from someone who's who's not a regular starter uh, in in the meantime. So uh, things are looking up, I think, for the Dodgers pitching at this point. Before we go on, Nick, uh, how concerned are you about this uh, Clayton Kershaw situation? He, he's uh, had a back problem that has been recurring, and now we, we hear that the latest issue is have has to do with his hip. But uh, as someone who's had back problems myself over the years, I know that when your back is sore, sometimes the next thing that happens is your hips get sore because you're trying to compensate for the sore back. It changes your gait. It changes how you walk. And I'm certain it must change how you try to reduce the load on your back while you're pitching, which is a very twist, uh, torso-twisting exercise. How concerned are you about uh, Clayton Kershaw in the medium term, uh, not just the short term? You know, I, I think there has to be some concern about that in, in the medium term with Clayton Kershaw. I guess the positive side side of this uh, seems to be we, we've seen Clayton Kershaw. We saw him with some some problems, injury problems last year, but the Dodgers seem to be very careful with him, and he he perhaps is in really good tune with his own body and knows when he's hurting. Uh, and so maybe there's a guy here who can kind of manage as he as he begins to to age a bit can manage these kinds of back problems, hip problems that cause difficulty and not find himself pitching in a game where he's going to give up 10 earned runs in one inning because he's just not right. 
Well, I certainly hope so. I don't play the National League. I, I don't play mixed leagues anymore, so I have no vested fantasy interest in how Clayton Kershaw does, but I think he's terrific for the game. I, I think he draws attention. I think people like seeing him. He, he reminds me of back in the day, you know, the Sandy Koufax type or the Bob Gibson, uh, Tom Seaver, uh, guys who everybody who likes baseball wants to watch when these guys pitch, and it's a shame when, when a guy like that has to sit on the shelf. I hope it's not serious, and I hope he comes back strong. Uh, on Wednesday, Nick St. Louis closer Trevor Rosenthal, speaking of injuries, was transferred from the 10-day to the 60-day DL. Uh, Phil Hertz is on the story for playing time today, and this does not look at all good for, for uh, Rosenthal or his fantasy owners. No, it's not It's not good news. I mean, Rosenthal's uh, season is over. He's apparently going to undergo Tommy John surgery, which means he'll miss uh, most, if not all, of next season as well. Uh, so uh, this this is not a good thing. If I were a fantasy owner of Trevor, Trevor uh, Rosenthal, I'd be dropping him at this point because he's not going to help you this year and probably isn't even a worthwhile keeper as you head into, head into next season because he's not going to pitch much next year uh, unless he's able to come back in September or something like that. In the meantime, of course, there will be saves to be had in St. Louis. Pretty good team. I'm guessing St. Louis is going to turn back to Seung Juan Ho? That seems likely. That seems to be the thing that there they would be most reasonable. You remember that uh, that O started the season as the closer, lost the job after a number of blown saves. Lately has pitched uh, very, very well. Uh, 3.42 XDRA, uh, 11 DOM, a fantastic 13 command. Uh, so I would think he would get first dibs. And that command rate strikeouts to walks is really something. 13 strikeouts for every walk is is really what you want. Uh, but he did have it's that little... amazing, isn't it? Yeah, he had that little stretch where he wasn't doing so well and he lost the role. But I think, uh, obviously, he's going to get first dibs. Uh, any long shot candidates here that might be worth a reserve bid, small wager? Yeah, maybe so. Uh, they could use Tyler Lyons. Lyons hasn't yielded an earned run since July 6th in 15 appearances in 13.2 innings. Uh, and that's kind of impressive. They also recalled Ryan Sheriff, who will make his major league debut when he makes his first appearance with the Cardinals. Been pitching exclusively in relief for Memphis. 3.19 ERA, 13 walks, 47 strikeouts in 53.2 innings pitch. So so that's good. Uh, to make room for Sheriff, they sent Josh Lucas back to the minors. Lucas had been up a week and appeared twice through four innings. One walk, five strikeouts, but also gave up Homer and three earned runs. And he'll likely be back in St. Louis, Lucas will, when rosters expand in September. So there'll be a new sheriff in town is what you're telling me. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> you got it. Finally, Nick, I-, I was watching a game earlier this week when news was flashed on the screen that the Dodgers' Rich Hill was spinning a perfect game through six or seven at the time. And, of course, any time a perfect game is going and you happen to have the extra innings package on your cable, uh, I switched over. And I, I, <laughs> of course. I, and I, yeah, I saw Rich Hill lose in order. First he lost the perfect game on an error by Logan Morrison. Then he lost – all at once, the no-hitter, the shutout, and the win on a walk-off home run by Josh Harrison. It was a terrific outing. It was very exciting. But lost in the glare was a really excellent performance by Pittsburgh rookie right-hander Trevor Williams. He scattered seven hits in eight innings, and he allowed no runs. He looked very good out there, and he's one of the pitchers that Stephen Nickran mentioned recently in a starting pitcher buyer's guide column about home road splits. Yeah, you know, there, there were two columns this week that Stephen did on home road splits, one for pitchers, one for hitters. And uh, I, I really recommend both of those columns at this time of year for folks because it's the time when streaming someone where they're at home or on the road uh, could be very, very valuable. Uh, Stephen called Williams an under-the-radar, another under-the-radar pitcher. He's not really a strikeout pitcher, either home or away, but his other skills at home are much better than on the road. 
Uh, at home, a walk rate of 2.6 walks per nine innings. On the road, 3.6. Command rate, 2.5 at home. Uh, strikeouts per walk, 1.9 on the road. Uh, base performance value, 86 at home, 56 on the road. And the stats are following suit. On the road, a home ERA, a, a home ERA of 4.08, a road ERA of 4.85, a home whip of 1.22, a road whip of 1.46. So certainly if you're looking for a streaming starter in deeper leagues, Trevor Williams is the guy to take a look at. And, of course, he's a rookie, which might interest uh, keeper, dynasty-type players because you might get something worth having this year, but uh, as he gets a little more experience, he looks like he's the kind of guy who could be a pretty pretty good pitcher. I don't think he's an ace-caliber guy, Nick. The strikeout rates are simply too low. I think uh, it's around seven strikeouts per nine dominance rate at home and 6.9, pretty much the same thing on the road. And really, at this stage in Major League Baseball's evolution, I think we're looking for more like closer to, to eight and a half, nine for an elite level pitcher right i think so yeah and uh, i should point out the home record that you mentioned nick might even be a little misleading uh, just after Stephen posted his article williams had a really awful home start against st louis he three innings eight earned runs nine base runners three homers if you take that one out listen to this williams home era is 317 and his whip is 114 and those are elite numbers they are indeed those are very elite numbers and so you know if you excuse that one start uh, as just uh, a uh, he had a stomach virus today or something you know that that uh, showed up in what he, the way he pitched those really are very good numbers if you can get them consistently out of someone just before we go nick i'm curious what you think i've heard arguments about this this whole idea of if you exclude that one whatever his stats are much better uh, or worse than they than they turn out to be do you think it's a reasonable thing to say if you exclude something that actually happened because after all it actually happened it did happen, I, you know, so yes, I mean, it, it did happen and it could happen again. It depends, I think, for a fantasy player, for a fantasy owner, it depends on the, um, the, the league and what you're playing and how the stats are used and, and the overall context. If you're using overall stats, that bad start hurts a lot. Uh, in one of the leagues that I play in, we use weekly stats. And that means one bad week and any guy can have one bad week. But if every other week during the season that he's pitching at home is an outstanding week, that one bad week isn't going to hurt you. So it really depends on how those stats are being used in your league uh, and what they mean to you. And of course, we know all pitchers are su uh, subject to uh, a lot of variability on a game-by-game -game basis. Even Clayton Kershaw's had his duds over the years. Nothing quite as horrendous as that, I can't imagine. I'll have to look it up. I think he had it out at the start in Arizona, maybe last season, that was absolutely awful. Yeah, and I, I can tell you, I've had ace pitchers on my fantasy staffs, and uh, you just look on in horror as a guy goes two-thirds of an inning and gives up seven runs or something like that. It, it happens. In the abstract, I think you have to exclude it. I think you have to say, yes, these things happen, but overall this guy is, in general, a good pitcher. But when you start talking about his stats, you say, well, if you take this out and add this back and so forth, I think you're uh, maybe trying to convince yourself of something that you really ought to be more careful about convincing yourself. Yeah, I think so. But, I, you know, I, what I watch for in those situations as a fantasy owner is somebody else in my league panicking and dropping the guy because of one bad start or one bad performance uh, and then there may be a chance to pick up somebody on the cheap because another owner panicked and this, this 
thing that caused the panic is not going to happen again this season. And I think therein lies the rub. Is it not going to happen again this season? I think that's what has to worry us all. I'd be less worried about a Clayton Kershaw having a dud that it's going to happen again because we know from long-term track record that it's probably highly unlikely to happen again. Trevor Williams, he's a rookie, and uh, he gives up this this horrible outing as a, as a rookie pitcher. We just don't have the, the track record to rely on that it is really an anomaly, an outlier, and that it won't happen again because we don't know. That's right. We don't know. And maybe maybe it happened because the hitters have suddenly figured something out about Trevor Williams and gotten the scouting reports and know how to deal with him. So you're right. It depends on the track record and, and whether or not this is someone that we've seen over a period of years or someone we've seen over a period of weeks. Having said that, of course, his next outing was the one I talked about earlier uh, when he when he um, went toe-to-toe with Rich Hill, throwing a perfect game and threw a shutout himself and looked really, really commanding. So whatever went wrong against St. Louis, it certainly didn't bother him any. Absolutely. Okay, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. We'll talk back with you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here again. Big news first out of Boston. They lost Jackie Bradley Jr. to the DL with a sprained thumb. I saw him do it. It dragged awkwardly across home plate. It looked pretty bad. The early word is that he could miss more than the minimum 10 days. Boston went right out and got Rajai Davis from Oakland. They're rebuilding. Uh, They got a minor leaguer of no particular note. Matt Dodge wrote about all of this in playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. So what's the outlook in Boston? Yeah, it was interesting. That one kind of puzzled me a little bit at first because I had followed Davis for most of the the first half, and and he was just awful. Um, He, uh, I think he hit 214 and 200 at-bats, and... uh, he actually lost his job. He only has 95 at-bats in the second half for the A's, but wow, has he come around. Uh, 16 stolen bases, six home runs, uh, 274 batting average. This is an interesting pickup because uh, obviously he, he he's going to take, I think, the lineup spot of, uh, of uh, Jackie Bradley, however long he's out. And that's a nice park for right-handed hitters, uh, particularly hot right-handed hitters. Fenway, uh, it's a, as Matt pointed out, it's a net, it's a net plus 25% park boost uh, uh, between going from Oakland to Fenway. Um, right now, Bro- Brock Holt has been playing uh, left field uh, while they wait for, for Raj Davis to report, but uh, I think he's going to be in the lineup most nights, and I'm pretty sure that the Red Sox aren't going to entrust center field to him. They're going to put... Uh, Andrew Benintendi there, at least they have the last couple of nights, so he won't be such a such the defensive liability he was in uh, in Oakland. I saw John Farrell actually said he expects to use Benintendi in left and Davis in center because Benintendi's really good at playing the balls off the green monster, and that's a real consideration for Boston. Uh, you, you don't want to put a new outfielder who's unfamiliar to play all those weird caroms and know when it's going to be over your head or off the wall and where to stand, all that kind of stuff, and Benintendi's been really good at that this year. Uh, as a Rajai Davis owner, I don't care where he plays as long as he plays somewhere because I was really worried about his playing time in Oakland. Actually, this could be a real benefit. Uh, Boston also recalled Devin Marrero. He uh, played a little earlier this year, not too, uh, not too tremendous uh, of production. He's on the 25-man roster. However, any interest in Devin Marrero? No, not really. I mean, Marrero is probably just up. Uh, I mean, they the Boston needs a uh, a middle infielder to back up uh, 
the regular center or a corner I should say a utility infielder to back up the regulars while Holt is needed in the outfield I think when uh, Davis uh, arrives in Boston and they activate him he probably goes back uh, to the minors he was called up uh, as the the corresponding um, activation for or I should say Rosserad when Bradley went to the DL and that's a good point you make about that left field wall in uh, in Boston I hadn't thought about that I had watched Davis for so long play a really wretched center field in Oakland I just assumed they would never trust him there it'll be interesting to see how the Boston pitchers deal with that well, yeah, and uh, it's kind of a Hobson's choice for Boston, isn't it, really? They probably don't want Davis playing left, at least at home, because of the quirks of the Green Monster, as we've discussed. But at the same time, they they uh, don't want to have uh, Davis play center either because he's just not that good at it, so they're going to have to make a tough choice there. I, I wonder if on the road they'll just put Davis in left where he's pretty much used to playing and, and put Benintendi back in center. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Actually, I think the Red Sox would probably like to get Jackie Bradley at, back at some point. At which, at which time, I think uh, I think they're better off spotting Davis and matching him up, depending on the matchups and the parks that they're in, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. He could probably even play a little bit of DH for them at times, uh, particularly if he stays hot, because he's just not much with the glove right now. And he could also get some pinch running opportunities, you'd think, pinch hitting and pinch running opportunities in Boston, even if he's not starting. Yeah, absolutely. As you well know, that's where his real value lies. Uh, 16 stolen bases in the second half, he's really upticked. In Cleveland, they had some really rough news, Jock. They lost both starter Danny Salazar and their top reliever, Andrew Miller, to the DL. And these look like really big losses. Miller, obviously, but Salazar had been throwing really well over six starts since he came back from his last trip to the DL. Tom Kephart covered all of this for playing time today. How do fantasy owners take advantage of any of this, or is it even possible? Yeah, you know, Salazar, it's, it's such, that's a really good point. Salazar had a 2.68 ERA, 2.285 expected. In 37 innings in the second half since his recall, uh, 51 to 10 strikeout to walk ratio so he had just been lights out and and he's always been injury prone but he'd been pitching so well this injury kind of hit hit his owners out of the blue I know my wife is one of them um, Miller also he'd missed 17 days with knee problems and and came back and then just made two appearance before he's back on the DL again I don't think I don't think the Indians have anybody you know quite like these guys when they're right. Uh, they have a uh, an AL Central lead of four or five games, so they're catchable. But they're going to have to make sure that these guys are healthy uh, for the postseason before they they get them back. So they could be out for a while. Um, I don't think there's any timetable on either of their returns. I don't think uh, I don't think Cleveland has any idea. And and at least to replace Salazar, you're looking at Ryan Merritt, who's you know, he's kind of a soft-tossing, back-of-the-rotation guy. He's had a couple of starts. He's pitched reasonably well. They've pulled him early. He has a, a 3 312 ERA in, uh, in only about 9 or 10 uh, innings with Cleveland this year. But uh, his expected ERA is, is much higher than that. He doesn't strike out a lot of guys. Uh, he lives off ground balls and control. So he could blow up at any time. Uh, just not a real good replacement for Danny Salazar. Yeah, I imagine most of Cleveland fans will be looking back at the playoff start that Ryan Merritt had that was really terrific last year and uh, and hope that maybe he can recover some of that magic. But like you say, the record seems to indicate he's not going to be that dominant uh, of a pitcher at his best. Uh, something of a different story in Tampa. Rookie Jacob Faria went down with an abdominal injury. He's been very good in his uh, Major League debut. But Matt Dodge says the raised depth should help cushion this loss. 
Yeah, um, the, the, the interesting thing about Faria going down first, he had started to struggle a little bit his last couple starts. Uh, his, his ERA, uh, in fact, in the second half was 4.08. It's not terrible, but his, his peripherals were, were fading just a little bit. He was having some control problems. But uh, right as he went out with the abdominal injury, Alex Cobb came back from turf toe, and, and Cobb actually pitched uh, pretty good yesterday, Thursday, a four and a third innings. Uh, didn't give up any runs, only allowed four hits, got st five strikeouts, just one walk. He was pulled early because of a high pitch count. Um, but um, Tampa Bay has a lot of pitching depth, so uh, I'm not sure how, how much this is going to hurt him. It'll be interesting to see. And the other question is, uh, does Faria get his rotation spot back when he returns, assuming it's not too long? Yeah, it would seem that he would be a candidate because just because Austin Pruitt right now is holding down that number five spot, and Pruitt's been pretty volatile over six, over seven starts, uh, 5.76 ERA overall that just doesn't look very good. He's, he's looked decent at times, but he's another soft tosser who really relies on his command. The real question here is whether Blake Snell can continue to build off his last three starts, which if you watch Blake... Blake Snell, uh, and I'm pretty sure you have, given that you you follow the AL East pretty closely. He's been pretty good. He's pitched at least six innings in each one of them, which is pretty surprising for Blake Snell, given his issues uh, over the last couple of years uh, adjusting to major league play. And he's pitched very well. Uh, and the other question is also whether uh, Matt Andriese, uh, with the he's on the DL because of uh, hip problems, can come back in September. He's been good in, in 12 starts, uh, 3.54 ERA. And also with Tampa, when you're talking about their depth, you have to look at Brent Honeywell. They could potentially activate him for September. He's knocking at the door. So no real uncertainties with Faria, but he'll be in the mix. In Minnesota, they lost Miguel Sano to the DL. He has a stress injury in his shin. I don't know if that's a shin splint or what that is exactly. And Kenneth Vargas was called up to take his place. Rick Green covered this for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. All of this happened just a couple of days ago. So what's the early word on Miguel Sano? And what are the Twins going to do to get by in his absence, considering they're in the playoffs right now? Yeah, I know. That's an interesting one, and I'm with you. I'm not quite sure what that injury is, and, and I don't, I'm not sure that the Twins are either. I haven't found anything that suggests there's an ETA uh, for Sano. Hopefully for them, it's it's going to be soon because uh, they they haven't uh, they haven't fared well over the last uh, over the last week. They've lost three out of five games without Sano, and they've started to struggle to score runs the past few nights. Uh, they've used Eduardo Escobar and uh, Jire uh, Adrianza uh, over at third base. And they've used Kenny Vargas over at uh, over at DH. Uh, in uh, he was called up to replace uh, Sano on the roster. Um, Vargas has always been good for a, an occasional home run, uh, maybe some walks with a low batting average, and typically he's been two for ten with a home run and three walks in Sano's absence. Uh, uh, Mitch Garver might get a few extra starts here, particularly now with catcher Jason Castro on the DL. Garver has played a number of different positions. Uh, this is not a good time to be having injuries, like you said, for a team in the hunt like Minnesota. I think the real worry here for Minnesota, as you said, is that they just don't know how soon it's going to be before he gets back. And without him, they do look like they're going to be struggling to score runs, that's for sure. Finally, a rare ray of sunshine, a rare little bit of good news. The White Sox called up super prospect Lucas Giolito to make his White Sox debut in the rotation after Ronaldo Lopez was left to injury. Talk a little about Lucas Giolito. Yeah, well, 
he was the top pitching prospect in baseball for several years uh, until last year uh, for the Nationals. And of course, Nationals, the Nationals traded him uh, as one of the, the booty that uh, uh, the White Sox have been uh, gathering up in their rebuilding effort. Uh, he's had a very up and down year in, uh, in AAA. I'm looking at his game log right here. He'll he'll go a game where he'll look lights out. Uh, July 8th, he gave up two hits, struck out 10, didn't give up any any runs. Next start, he gives up three runs in five innings. Next start, he gives up five runs in one and two-thirds innings. Next start, he gives up no runs again in seven innings. So that's the kind of season that Giolito's had in the minors. Uh, his first start for uh, for the White Sox uh, wasn't bad at all. He gave up three home runs, but he only allowed four runs in six innings. He didn't walk anybody. He struck out four. Uh, a lot of folks, a lot of analysts still think he can reach something close to his potential down the road. Uh, um, they're trying to iron out his mechanics and trying to make him more consistent. He's got good upside. I, I would say that his promotion is a little bit different than some of the run-of-the-mill, back-of-the-rotation upside guys we're seeing coming up for most teams with injury problems late in the season. Um, if he's available and you really need pitching, uh, obviously Giolito's a, a He's at least a flyer. I just wouldn't count on him in the short term as a savior this year. Well, that's interesting. You say if you need pitching, then maybe you look at Lucas Giolito. But when we say that, what do you mean? It looks to me when I look at Lucas Giolito like you're not probably going to get a lot of wins because Chicago's not a good team. They don't score a lot of runs. And uh, ERA and ratio, I, I don't know about that. Obviously, there could be some strikeouts here. So let's narrow this down. You say we're looking for a pitcher. Take a look at Lucas Giolito. What kind of pitcher would you have to be looking for before you'd take that chance? Yeah, I'm probably personalizing this a, a little bit because I'm a guy who has uh, James Paxson on the DL and uh, Aaron Sanchez on the DL and uh, um, uh, and I have a, a, a few other guys on the deal, and I'm in I'm in second place, and I and I still have a chance to win, and I need strikeouts. Um, that's probably one way you do it. If you're if you're starting pitching staff is all of a sudden on on the DL, um, so I'm I'm kind of looking at Giolito as somebody who who could come in and and pitch decently and maybe maybe help me in the strikeout column. On the other hand, uh, I'm talking about late August. Uh, I'm I'm really you know looking at my last chance to to maybe uh, gain some points in the race that I'm in, uh, I'm not expecting to win this thing right now, given what's happened to my pitching staff. It's kind of a last gasp type thing. Yeah, I could use some strikeouts as well, but I'm so leery of losing ground in ERA and, and whip while I'm gaining ground in strikeouts because uh, although Giolito doesn't walk a lot of guys, which uh, usually helps keep the uh, ERA down a little bit and keeps the whip down a little bit. Yeah, it's an interesting situation to try to parse through. The one other thing is I I've heard people say is, hey, it's coming up to September. He's going to be pitching against a lot of rosters where they're testing out their rookies and testing out their prospects after the September call-up. But then I look at the uh, Chicago White Sox schedule. There's a lot of games there in their division in the AL Central. That means a lot of games, Cleveland, Kansas City, Minnesota, all of them angling for the for the playoff run which means even if they do call up a bunch of guys, chances are those guys are not going to be playing. It's going to be big-time major leaguers against Lucas Giolito for most of the rest of the year. Yeah, now you're right. That's a good point. And, then, and that's when you really, when you're making these decisions, you really have to look at the future schedule and, and check the matchup, see what kind of offenses these guys are going to go against. Um, 
it's an interesting situation. You're right. It's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And where are you in the hip, in the whip, and the the ERA races? So uh, these are tough calls at the end of the year when you start getting injuries. And I like to think that this is one of the ways that BaseballHQ.com's analysis and philosophy differ from a lot of other websites and radio shows and all the rest of the kind of thing that that people have access to is that ordinarily the question is, should I pick up Lucas Giolito? And the answer is, well, sure, he's a pretty good pitcher. But you have to look beyond, yeah, he's a pretty good pitcher. These things are full of contextual issues. They're full of uh, analysis opportunities to look at op- the level of opposition. Where are you in the categories? There's a lot going on before you make a decision on a suspect kind of guy like Lucas Giolito. I'm not saying he's bad. I'm not saying he's particularly good. I'm saying we don't know because he's so young and inexperienced and because of that, you have to be very careful about making a decision on whether to activate him based on where you are, where he is, all of these kind of things. Yeah, this is this is the crapshootiest of times, if I can coin a word there. You only have, what, five, six weeks left in the season now. Um, you have to know who, who the competition is. Uh, you have, you know you, you really have to look under the covers and uh, anything can happen. It's, it's a very small sample going forward. And I'll be looking at whether you can move in the decimal categories in pitching in my Master Notes commentary a little later on, so stay with us for that, uh, Jock. In the meantime, thanks very much for helping us out, and we'll catch up with you again next week. Okay, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's our feature expert interview, Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Miguel Cabrera was actually super animated about, hey, you have to protect your teammates when Michael Fulmer retaliated. Wait a minute, here we go. Oh, here we go at home. Romine and Cabrera get into it. Punches thrown. Romine getting into the gut of Cabrera. And now both benches are cleared as Romine and Cabrera at the bottom of a pile. And both teams storming for them at home plate. Clint Frazier is holding back Gary Sanchez trying to get in on it. And Cabrera's still down. This is not your ordinary best. So there was some severe punching in there. Usually it's a lot of pushing and shoving, but some, they got some good shots here. Baseball HQ Radio. Move over Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor. A little comic relief in Wednesday's game between the Yankees and the Tigers with Austin Romine and Miguel Cabrera going at it. Is it just me, or do we see this sort of thing more these days in baseball than we used to in hockey? A bunch of players and coaches were ejected, and we'll be watching for the suspensions. Welcome back to MMA HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball. Gene, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, Patrick. Great to be here, as always. It's great to have you as well. Before we get started talking about players uh, today, uh, let's talk about your expert league's teams and how they're doing. Uh, not so well, uh, although better lately. I mean, I had pretty much of a disastrous start, and then I just am trying to recover from there and do the best I can. I'm not going to win anything, but I'm still going to play them out. Yeah, that's important to do. I think uh, all of us who play these leagues uh, advise our listeners, our readers, and so forth, keep plugging away because uh, you might not win anything this year, 
But the lessons you learn in trying to pick up that one standing spot or that one, you know, point or two points in a particular category, it's, it's valuable training and experience for when you really do need to take a shot at a pennant. Yes, well, I'm sick and tired of getting val- gaining valuable experience. But, um, um, yeah, I mean, I just do it because uh, I don't want to be embarrassed. You know, I don't want to, I'd rather finish ninth than tenth. I'd rather finish fourth than fifth. Um, and of course, I'd rather finish first. But um, yeah, it's just the way that you know. It's like regular baseball. You play the game right, you know, and let the chips fall where they may. But I'm still going to play the game right, unless I'm trying to dump, which I did in my uh, in the XFL league. Um, but of course, that's for the purpose, so it's not quite the same thing. And the XFL, we should point out for people not familiar with it, is a keeper league, and it's a very deep, structured keeper league. You guys have an awful lot of prospects. You have very, very deep minor league systems, and uh, it's pretty common in that league to have three, four-year rebuilding cycles. Yeah, and really it's the way you have to do it. Um, and so I thought I had a shot at contending this year, uh, but for the you know, it was obvious pretty quickly that I didn't, so I decided to just, you know, I've just been accumulating prospects. And actually what I've been doing in that league is I've been accumulating prospects who are a little bit below the radar. Um, since the great, you know, the big prospects are taken and uh, will remain taken. Um, so, but there are a lot of players who come up who were actually good players and even star players who are not listed as top prospects. In fact, it's one of the things I'm going to focus on in, uh, in the 2018 uh, wise guy baseball is such players as you know Mariano Rivera and Robinson Cano and uh, many other players were never on a top 100 prospects list and yet here they are and how do you identify those kinds of prospects when you're looking at them right now well I think the best way to do it is to look at their performance you know I mean there was always a uh, you know the big dichotomy is supposed to be between who the scouts like and who the performance-oriented sabermetrics like. Um, and there are a lot of players who who perform well but are not on the top prospects list. We'll talk about them as they go along. Um, you know, Jesus Aguilar on the, on the Brewers, you know, he has zero defensive value, but if you look at his record, it was always pretty clear that if you put this guy in the major leagues, he's going to do something. And there are a lot of guys like that. Um, so yeah, keep an eye on the performance in AAA and also think about what the teams are doing with them. Because one of the things that I realized this year is, and I should have realized it a long time ago, is that when you look at a team's top prospects list, um, from all the, from the various publications from HQ or Baseball America, those are not the same list that the teams themselves are using. Um, they have a different set of criteria and, you know, pay attention to who was added to the 40-man roster over the winter. And, you know, oh, well, you know, he's 25 years old. He's not a prospect. Well, you know, he's not going to make the Hall of Fame, but he can still be a good player for several years. So, you know, that's what you should, people should be focusing on, I think. Yeah, I think that's really sound advice, Gene. And I would just add in, take a look at who the good organizations are promoting. Take a look at who the good organizations seem to be grooming for a shot at the major leagues, maybe in a different role than right now. And uh, I would also advise, take a look at who gets on that Arizona Fall League uh, schedule, because it used to be that that was kind of a place where they dumped some guys that they weren't sure about. But over the last few years, since I've been going to first pitch Arizona in the fall, the, the... 
the emphasis seems to have changed where the major league teams are now putting out in November into into that Arizona league. They're they're using the opportunity to give prospects at third base a chance to play second or the outfield or catchers moving out into the outfield or, or vice versa. They're, they're experimenting with guys they clearly have their eye on because, you know, 15 years ago or, or so, uh, you wouldn't really see anybody of note out there. And uh, in the time that I've been going there, I've talked about this. Uh, we were at a game one night when Mike Trout and Bryce Harper were standing side by side in a batting order, getting ready to take their cuts. And we were sitting uh, in the front row watching and you think to yourself, these are guys that are, are clearly ticketed for the big time. And, and that was not a secret, but it makes you think that the major league teams are taking the AFL much more seriously these days, and it's worth, even if you don't go out and see the games, it's worth keeping track of. You will never see so much talent playing in front of so few people. Yes, definitely. I agree with that completely. I think that if anybody who was sent to the Arizona Fall League is at least a marginal prospect. And there is some roster filler out there, but boy, oh boy, there's also some guys that are going to turn your head. And as you said, they're not always the guys who are on the Baseball HQ Top 100 or the Baseball America Top 100. And oftentimes they're not really considered uh, prospects because they are a little old. But boy, if you can get out there and get those uh, names into your head a little bit ahead of your competitors, it's a real plus. Uh, Speaking of guys who came out of nowhere a little bit, uh, Aaron Judge of the Yankees was at the Arizona Fall League a couple of years ago, and a lot of us thought his swing was too long for him to be really successful. He's such a big guy. But he looked like the second coming of Lou Gehrig for a while in the first half, 49 homers per 500 at-bats. He batted three twenty-five, But in the second half, he's cooled off like Haley's Comet on the outbound leg, Cut that home run rate quite a bit. He's only batting 218 and 200 in 70 at bats this month. How will you be positioning Aaron Judge for Wise Guy Baseball in 2018 and for your own drafts and auctions? Well, I don't think there's any question that he's for real. I mean, this cooling down thing is something that had to happen. Um, but it doesn't really, I think that when the, I'd like to see him finish strong, which I think he will at some point. I think this, this slump will continue and then it'll turn around. He is a high strikeout fly ball hitter. This is this kind of thing is going to happen. But I think the worst that he's going to be is Chris Davis on the Orioles, and the best he's going to be is Mark McGuire. Um, and I think the fact that it, most of his problems have come against left-handed pitching, and I think that's a great sign for the future because his natural, you know, the natural platoon edge uh, takes over with almost all players. Um, and he, the fact that he's already demonstrated that he can destroy righties in the major leagues is a really encouraging sign for the future. I don't know that I would make him my best hitter, uh, but I think if you make him your second best hitter, I don't think you're going to regret it next year. Seems like a pretty good chance that he's probably going to be overpriced in a lot of auction leagues and maybe drafted a round or two too early in, in that format of, of player acquisition. So uh, is there a point after which you're just going to bow out of the bidding and let other people take the playing, the, the not the playing time risk, I think he's going to play, but there is a performance risk here that if he doesn't straighten out whatever's ailing him, uh, it may be that the pitchers have figured him out and he hasn't figured them out back. It's possible. Um, but I don't think, I mean, he's got a 350 floor on his on-base percentage. So if you're in a league like that, he's, he's more valuable. Yeah, I'm not going to go bananas for him, but I, I'm, I'm not sure that he's going to be overhyped. I, I, I think it depends on the publicity over the winter, I think, and also how he finishes. Um, you know, keep an eye on both those things, and 
you know, take him for what he is. You know, I think that by the end of the year, his batting average is going to be about what it should be. Um, so whatever it is, take it as that and, you know, figure, yes, he's going to hit minimum of 35 home runs. So, you know, that's a high draft pick. I mean, whether, as they say, I don't, wouldn't make him my best hitter, but I don't think you'll be, I'll be disappointed to make him my second best. And you did mention on-base percentage and his struggles against left-handers do not carry across to the left-handers as on-base percentage this year against them is 435. It's even higher than it is against right-handers, so he's he's clearly drawing his walks. He's having a little trouble uh, getting base hits, but uh, that 435 batting average, uh, OBP, I should say, almost double his batting average against left-handers, which means he's drawing a ton of walks. I think it's somewhere around 25% of his plate appearances are resulting in walks, and that's a fairly decent way to protect uh, against the the troubles hitting left-handers that just draw a million walks and and uh, either they'll start pitching to him a little more easily or at least you can rely on the, the at-bat count going down which is going to protect the average to, to some extent yeah i think that's true i also think that part of his um i mean you don't really say problem because he's having a great season but i think he's a little too passive on the first pitch i think that he should be looking a little bit more towards you know, getting a, hitting a strike on the first pitch rather than taking the first pitch for a strike, uh, which he does a lot. And, um, you know, I don't want to tell these guys how to hit because uh, that's a bad way to do it, but I think if he's a little bit more aggressive, I don't think he'll lose very much at all in the walks department, but I think pitchers will, pitchers are just trying to, you know, get him 0-1-1 now, and to a large extent they're succeeding, and I think that, you know, if he adjusts back, um, that's a great sign for him, and then he would go up a t- uh, tick, in my opinion, for next year. If he doesn't, then maybe down a tick, make him my third best hitter. So let's see how he finishes. The Dodgers' Cody Bellinger is kind of like the West Coast version of Aaron Judge. He just went on the DL, actually, but it's I think it's a short-run thing, and a minor ankle injury. He's been a real monster since they called him up in uh, the latter part of April. So how does he shape up next year as a fantasy asset, Gene? And feel free to compare him to Aaron Judge. Well, I think they're very similar. Um, I, one thing that I've noticed about Bellinger since the All-Star break is his power is down a little bit, but his average is up. Um, so I think that he's also in the adjustment phase, and uh, and he's reacting to it very well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's going to be, I would call him as probably a second-rounder for next year, and that's where he should go. I mean, he's right up there. He's an elite first baseman, and I don't think there's any question about that. Any uh, warts on this uh, particular frog? Well, I mean, he strikes out a lot. He hits a lot of fly balls. So, I mean, he, his batting average could be streaky. Um, but the fact that he seems to be making a conscious effort to, um, to strike out less and to make contact with two strikes is a really good sign. I mean, it shows adaptability. And once you've demonstrated the kind of elite ability that he has demonstrated, the fact that he's making adjustments is even better sign to me. I also like that he's uh, he's not as advanced, shall we say, versus left-handers as a left-handed hitter, but he's he's showing signs. His contact rate is actually higher against lefties than it is against righties. His walk rate is a little lower, but all around, uh, he, he seems to be doing well enough against left-handers that there's not a real huge concern in that department. No, and they face fewer lefties in the minor leagues. Um, because there's so many stiff lefties in the majors. Um, but, I think yeah, so it's just a question of experience with that, and I think he'll handle it well. He hangs tough against them, and that's, you know, 
from a scouting standpoint, that's what I want to see. You know, is he does he look foolish a lot against left-handed pitchers? And the answer is no, he doesn't. So I think he's going to be fine in that department. And I'm really curious about Kansas City second baseman Whit Merrifield. He had a terrific first month last year, if I remember correctly, and then really fizzled out to the point where, as we came into this year, the second base situation uh, didn't even really mention Whit Merrifield that often. And yet here he comes, and uh, Whit Merrifield's having a terrific year. He's batting 288, and most importantly, in a, in a game where stolen bases are becoming ever more rare, he's got 24 of them to go along with 14 home runs. That's pretty good, and the question is, again, is it sustainable? How do you value Whit Merrifield as you look at him for 2018? Well, I, I value him the same way I uh, value the young Brandon Phillips. I think they're very similar players. Um, interesting about Merrifield is that I was looking at the 2016 prospect handbooks, and he's listed nowhere in any of them. Um, but I remember at the beginning of last year, the Kansas City GM was on the radio talking him up, and the, uh, the interviewers were kind of laughing at him. Whit Merrifield, he's no prospect at all. But this is an example of, of how the teams value prospects as opposed to how the prospect watchers value him. And the reason is, well, mostly because of age. Um, he, had demonstrated, he hadn't demonstrated this kind of power, but once you've demonstrated that kind of power in the major leagues, you have to think it's for real. You know, it's not elite power, but it's there. Um, I think he's going to be good for 15 to 20, and he's going to steal, you know, over 20 bases, he's going to hit for a decent average. So, yeah, he's Brandon Phillips, and, and that's, a, that's a real example lesson of what, exactly what I was talking about with the prospects. Who do the organizations value? And in this case, it was clear that Kansas City did value him as a prospect. They saw something that the prospect watchers, I guess, missed. I thought so too, and uh, the thing that jumped out at me, Gene, right away is what you said, he's 28 years old, and I think at a certain point when we look at uh, the, the prospect journals and the, and the analysis of prospects by the Baseball Americas and Baseball HQ scouting teams and so forth, is at a certain age they just stop being prospects even if they are growing in the minor leagues. Baseball's really hard, and maybe for some players it just takes you know that extra year or two of seasoning or opportunity or figuring things out mentally physically, emotionally, there's a lot of things going on that that have to fall into place. For Whit Merrifield, maybe it took till age 28. It still gives him five or six potentially really productive years. But when I look at these skills, I'm still a little bit worried he's a low-ish hard contact guy because he doesn't make a lot of hard contact. His contact rate is actually up this year, but his hard contact is down, which means he's not hitting the ball as hard across the board. Expected power index is really right around league average. He does have the good speed skill, though, and that's something that, as I said uh, earlier, I think is really important because it's going to be harder and harder to find anybody who can steal 20 bases, let alone a guy who might chip in 12, 15 home runs. Yeah, and I don't care about hard contact with speed guys. In fact, sometimes it's better not to, you know, as long as you're hitting the ball, um, soft contact is, means a lot of, you know, cheap singles. But, you know, they may be cheap, but you're still on first base. Um, you know, little bloop singles, infield hits, that sort of thing um, doesn't bother me um, with, a, with, a, with a speed guy. I don't want Billy Hamilton hitting the ball hard. I want him hitting the ball 50 miles an hour. You know, so it dies on the grass. 
I am still a little concerned about Whit Merrifield, a 5% walk rate. I'd sure be happier if they, if you got that up into double digits to take advantage of his speed, but it looks like it just might not be his game. Yeah, well, as I say, Brandon Phillips, you know, is almost the same player. Another guy, I mean, he was a prospect, uh, but he was a kind of a failed prospect for a few years until he got it together. And ever since then, I mean, he's, you know, well, he's in his mid to late 30s now, and he's still playing well. And speaking of prospects who uh, had some trouble getting their feet underneath, the Minnesota outfielder Byron Buxton has been flashing signs of greatness as well, but he's been a flasher for a few seasons now. Inconsistent performance, exacerbated, I think, Gene, uh, and I'm curious if you agree with me, that Minnesota Twins organization really jerked this kid around. Up and down, first sign of failure, out you go, that kind of problem. But uh, so far this year, batting average is still a little low, but he's flashing some signs of power with nine home runs in 300 at bats and again stolen bases he's got 22 of them and it looks like he can really play with uh, center field which is valuable yeah i mean he's a great he's a great outfielder um first time i ever saw him i thought bj upton or melvin upton um, which is not very encouraging uh, but i mean I, I have an open mind on him and i i think it's really important to see how he finishes because i mean they're playing for a playoff spot too so i mean he's going to be in there every day He's going to be, you know, the competition's going to be elite. Everyone's going to be really focused on getting him out. And let's see how he reacts to that. And so I'm, I'm reserving judgment on him for last year. I mean, as they say, you know, B.J. Upton stole some bases too, but I don't think his owners were, were, were ever really delighted to have him. So let's see how he finishes. Baseball HQ has him at 15 bucks for this year so far, which is, uh, I think, going to be a pretty normal valuation because of the bags. Uh, how much would you bid on him in 2018 if his name popped out in nomination? Right now, I think 15 is a fair price. Maybe you know, maybe 16 depending on what I needed at the draft. Uh, but I think that's right. That's just about right. Elvis Andrews, speaking of uh, dollar values, is top 10 in 15-team mixed by BaseballHQ.com valuations. Now, some people see this as a natural, if somewhat belated, arrival for Elvis Andrews. We've been waiting a while for this kind of performance. But there are others who still see it as something of a surprise, Gene. How do you view this year's Andrews performance, and how well do you think it will carry into next season? How dependable is Elvis Andrews going to be? Oh, I think it uh, is a natural growth in his case. I've been on him... Um for a couple of years now, and I've really been expecting this. So since uh, I'm going to stick with um, with what I said two years ago, and um, think that this is, you know, just a higher level of the same player, and I think that's that's what he is, and I think that that's what he'll continue to be. Um, whether he's a top ten guy, I wouldn't say that, but you know, top twenty, I would. What I like about Elvis Andrews when I look at the pattern is uh, is also what I don't like about him. If you go back to 2013, he was a mid twenty dollar player. Then last year, mid twenty dollar player, but in between, he's seventeen, sixteen, nineteen, and then this year, thirty two. And it's really hard to get a read on a guy whose value is bouncing around like that. And of course, the first thing you do is look at: was he losing playing time? Was he getting hurt? And the answer is no. Six hundred at bats. Six hundred at bats. Six hundred at bats. Five ninety six. He was lost down to five oh six last year but he was still a $25 player. So does the inconsistency in valuation and performance uh, worry you at all and cause you to think you might drop him down a notch or two? Well, I mean, there's the natural fluctuation that can and does happen all the time. But I think that, I think that he was 
playing under the level of his skills, and he was probably playing hurt at times, uh, getting all those at-bats. Um, so, I mean, I like guys that do that. I mean, I'd rather have a guy, especially a base stealer, I'd rather have him there because even if he, you know, he can get a couple of lucky hits and therefore a couple of lucky stolen bases. Um, so I think that he was probably playing hurt um, during the, but overall, I think he's been pretty consistent. And I was I was expecting him to you know to elevate his game earlier than he did. He came up very young, um, and he just hit. But it seems like he hit a plateau, and then then okay, um, this is what I need to figure out, and he's figured it out. And so I think that, that I think he's for real. If he finishes this year above thirty dollars, would you go thirty dollars in two thousand eighteen? Probably not, because. He's not a $30 player. <laughs> He's a $25 player, sure. I don't know. I mean, I think stolen bases are a little overvalued because of the scarcity. I mean, the, the flip side of that coin is stolen bases are way down. Therefore, it's much easier to get mediocre totals in the category or slightly better than mediocre to, uh, totals. I don't go out of my way to to increase the value of stolen bases when they're just because they're... Um, they're down around the league. There'll be plenty of guys who have 10, 15 stolen bases next year. And um, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to put a premium on those stolen bases. I'm just going to take them for what they are. Also, uh, Elvis Andrews, eight home runs last year, seven the year before, 16 this year so far, and he's still got 100 at-bats to come. So he looks like he may threaten to hit 20 home runs this year, and uh, part of that is because his uh, home run per fly ball rate is up double from last year, 6% to 12 but we know that there's something going on with power hitting and home run counts in Major League Baseball. I suspect the baseball itself. And uh, if they change the ball back, which I don't think they will, but do you do you see any um, reason for concern when a, when a home run per fly ball rate doubles and so does the actual home run output in a, in a single year? Yeah. Um, he'll hit 20 this year, but I think he'll hit 15 next year. Um as he comes back there. It's a combination of things. Part of it is, as you get older, you learn, okay, it's 2-1, and 3-1, and one. I'm looking for a pitch here that I can hit out of the ballpark, and they do. I mean, he's skilled enough to do that, especially with his high contact rate. Um, but he's been a little bit lucky, so, you know, drop him down to 15 next year, and I think that that's, that's the, the prudent way to go about evaluating him. Jonathan Scope of Baltimore had several seasons with some pretty decent power, 25 home runs last year in uh, 600 at-bats. That's something that you're looking for, but pretty awful plate discipline as a general rule, and then all of a sudden he's putting it together. Got a 280 batting average, no loss of power. When you look at Jonathan Scope, how do you scope, scoop, scope? Um, I definitely think that he's for real. Um, he is stu- isn't swinging at as many bad pitches this year. It doesn't take much. You know, he still doesn't have a high walk rate, but it's better than a lot better than it was. Uh, he's probably, what, about 6%, I think, is his walk rate, whereas it used to be 3 Um That's good. Um, I think it's a nice balance between aggressiveness and not being an over-aggressiveness. Um, also, he's hitting home runs to center field and to the right of center field, and once I see that, I say, okay, this guy's for real. They really can't get him out of way, um, consistently, that is. So, yes, I think he's definitely for real, and he's going to be a second, third-round pick next year, and he should be. I like Jonathan Scope a lot, too. Uh, 
primarily because his on-base percentage is all the way up around 350 because of that walk rate, and the batting average is snuck over uh, 300. Now, that might be, at least in part, the result of a fairly high hit rate has climbed up into the mid-30s, 34 35%, a little bit higher than it has been in years past. Could be a little bit of a decline there, but he's also hitting the ball hard, and we know that guys who hit the ball hard do have higher hit rates than guys that don't. Yeah, and also I've watched him a lot this year because I ha- I've had him in DFS many, many nights. He's been very good to me. Uh, but I see that when he gets two strikes on him, he's been, you know, rifling the ball to right center field and picking up, you know, the single in the RBI that way. And that's that's an adjustment. That's a real thing and um, a really good sign. So, you know, he was a guy who, was, who had established, quote, unquote, a level and then said, okay, this is what I need to do to get better, and he's done it. And that's, you know, that's exactly what we want to see in a player, especially a guy who's not, you know, who's still in his mid-20s. You mentioned B.J. Upton. He's out of baseball, but a big rebound this year for little brother Justin Upton, uh, conveniently after I had him last year. Uh, what about next year, though, for Justin Upton? He's apparently thinking of opting out of his contract, so I guess we're going to find out if the rest of Major League Baseball buys this big rebound he's having this year. They will, and um, he won that bad last year. I mean, his batting average wasn't so good, but he did hit 31 home runs. Um, I think that's next year his batting average will come down a little bit. He'll hit, you know, he'll hit 268 with 30 homers, and you know, as long as you don't overdraft him, I think that that's um, that's where he belongs, and that's what he is. And you know, a good, solid, not quite a foundation player, but a good building block player on your draft team, I think that's where he'll go. I mean, let's see if he opts out and see where he signs. You know, if he signs in a good home run park, that's uh, he'll go up a notch, and if he signs in San Francisco, he'll go down a notch. But other than that, I think basically what he's doing this year, minus a little bit of batting average, is what he is. Yeah, the batting average is the one thing that jumps out at me, too. Uh, the uh, chances are that he's going to finish with uh, more than 100 RBIs for the first time in quite a while. Of course, we know that's a team thing, but it also reflects maybe a, a slight improvement in his ability to, as you said, poke the ball when there's a runner aboard who, who might score. His batting eye is up because he's walking more, which indicates uh, that he's going to have more balls to hit. And while I think it's been disproved that um, the strikeout-to-walk ratio for hitters does not really have much influence on batting average. It does have an influence on slugging average, and and a guy who's all of a sudden walking a bit more should see a, a big bounce in uh, slugging, and that's what we're seeing with uh, with Justin Upton. Yeah, I think you want to see him in a good lineup, too. Um, and the Orioles are a good lineup, so he, a lot of traffic on the bases, a lot of... Uh, a lot of situations where the pitchers have to throw him strikes, and that's that helps him. I mean, I think that the whole thing is a little bit overblown, as you said. You know, it doesn't really walk rate doesn't really affect batting average at all. Um, but in 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 a lot of cases, it's it's not even a question of walks; it's a question of getting yourself into favorable counts more, and then to and then taking advantage of that. And the fact that they have to throw him strikes, I think, affects that a little bit more. 
there were three hitters, uh, Gene, who really exploded as home run producers this year. Again, partly because of the juiced ball, in my opinion. But we look at Justin Smoke, who just hit another one the other night. I think he's into the mid-30s now. Yonder Alonso slowed down after a, a really hot start. Logan Morrison continues to hit well when he's not giving up errors to kill perfect games, I suppose. Uh, which of Smoke, Alonzo, and Morrison do you think is the best bet to sustain the power momentum into 2018? Um, I would rate them Smoke, Alonzo, Morrison. Um, Smoke has cha- definitely changed his approach. Uh, he was, um, as he himself said, he was he never changed his swing, even when he, he wasn't conceding nothing in, with two strikes, and that was hurting him. Um, he couldn't hit breaking balls. He was terrible against curveballs and changeups, and then that's turn really turned around this year, and that's because he's changed his swing. So, um, we're what. Where the noise agrees with the news, um, I'm inclined to be a believer in that player. Um, you know, people forget that he was he was an elite prospect many years ago. Um, he was a first round draft pick, and a lot of people. He, I think he was the eighth player taken in the country. And I remember at the time people saying, "Well, that was a steal that they got him there," and it never went through for him. But I think he's also figured it out. And I expect it to be every bit as good next year as he as he was this year. Um, Alonzo he, he is a guy who bought into the swing path launch angle thing big time, and I think that paid off. The pitchers have made a little bit of an adjustment on him. So I, I mean, I would, don't think he's an elite player or anything, but I think he's a reasonable corner infield option. Um, Logan and Morrison can't stay on the field. Um, he sort of he sort of fits into that group too. Um, he's a guy that I would take again as a corner infielder, uh, but he wouldn't be as high on the list as the other two. The Boston Red Sox had two really terrific prospects uh, a couple of years ago: Yoan Moncada and Rafael De- De- Devers. And uh, they traded Moncada and kept Devers, and some people wondered about that. But the early returns this year, at least, seem to suggest they made the right pick. But they're both still young. When you look ahead to next year, would you rather have Devers or Yohan Moncada? Well, for next year, I think I'd rather have Devers. And, and as you mentioned, I, the Red Sox, that's what the Red Sox decided. And so far, the results are good. And so I think we should take them at face value. Um, I'm not knocking Moncada at all, at all. But I'm really impressed by uh, Devers. Anybody who hits a home run, a lefty, hit a home run off Araldus Chapman, I mean, that. I sit up and take notice of that. You know, um, he's uh, he's got. A, they both have a chance to be great players. They're both going to be good players. I think next year, I'd, I'd rather have Devers. And before we move on uh, to the pitchers, Gene, any other hitters we haven't mentioned on whom you're particularly bullish for 2018? Well, yeah, I think there were several hitters who've turned the corner this year. Besides guys we've mentioned, guys who've taken their game to the next level, as they say. Uh, Steven Souza, Marcelo Suna, um, Eugenio Suarez, and Didi Gregorius. I think the, all these guys are much improved hitters, and I think that all of them, it's sustainable and will be sustained. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball. And Gene, moving on, we're going to repeat the exercise, but let's look at the pitchers this year. At the top of the table, we see a lot of the names we'd expect. Kershaw, Scherzer, Sale, and Kluber are the four top aces. Which one worries you the most for 2018? Well, I'll go obvious here and say Kershaw because of the back. 
Um, I don't have any worries about any of them as far as talent is concerned. Um, Kershaw will probably drop down in uh, in drafts next year. Um, maybe that's an opportunity, but as a first rounder, um, even though I've been way in favor of taking him in the first round for the last several years, next year I think I'm going to shy off on it and uh, take one of the other guys in the second round. So do you think Kershaw, despite your uh, misgivings, is still the top pitcher out of those four when it comes to uh, draft position for 2018? Yeah, I think he's the best, um, but whether he's going to put up the best season or not, is uh, I'm, a, I'm skeptical about that because of the back. You know, it, it tends to be a chronic thing, and you know, once it happens, you know, as we saw it happen last year and it happened this year in a little bit different way, but you know, it's the same part of the body. Um, I think once you have those problems, they're not going to go away unless he comes up with some miracle cure. Uh, also with the Dodgers, Alex Wood is back on the DL. Not a new thing for him. Uh, he's having a terrific year if you can ignore the injuries. But, of course, it's very tough to ignore those kind of injuries, especially a guy who seems to have them over and over again. Well, what do you think about Alex Wood for 2018 as a as a top-level type guy? I think he's likely to be a little overvalued. I mean, depending on how he finishes and how the Dodgers... I mean, don't forget, he's pitching for an historically great team, and that rubs off. Um, if he's on the same team next year, it'll probably be the same thing. But, yeah, he's got injury concerns, and he, he's not a real hard thrower, um, and he doesn't have fantastic control. Um, I think he's he's a little over his head this year. I would not bet on it to continue. He'll be pretty good, but I don't think he's going to be as good as he was this year. James Paxton kind of broke out this year. People have been waiting on James Paxton for a few years now, and this year he seemed to put it all together, but again, there are injury concerns. Yeah, and he's had them every year. Now, he, I think, is for real um, as far as ability is concerned, um, but I think that he, you have to drop him down. Um, I would be very nervous if he was my second-best pitcher in a mixed league. Um I'd be pretty happy if he was my third best because um, I don't think you can bank on him for 30 starts and whether you can bank on him for 20 starts is uh, you know still up in the air. So I th- he has to be Dr. Notch despite the fact that his, to me there's no question that he's a really good pitcher. Luis Severino has been uh, terrific this year. Coming into the year, there were uh, several experts who were telling us to be mindful of Luis Severino as a late-game or mid-game type pitcher, and he's certainly come through in that regard. 310 ERA, 110 whip. He's got, uh, I think, 10 or 11 wins. He's doing really well, and the question is, when we start making our draft plans for 2018, where should Luis Severino fit in? Say when you're including the Alex Woods and James Paxons of the, of the bunch. Well, I'd, put him, I'd rank him ahead of both of them. Um, I've got him on several teams this year. I got him as a reserve pick on two slow drafts. Um, you know, and these are, you know, I'm, I'm drafting against people who know what they're doing. Um, but, but going into the year, I mean, it was obvious that the guy has great stuff. It's just a question of can he harness it. He did show that he could. In uh, last year, late last year, in, in his bullpen work, but the Yankees wanted him to be a starter, so it was a question of can he, you know, can he sustain that success throwing a hundred pitches a game? And clearly, he can. Um, he's a big guy; should be able to hold up as far as uh, as far as his arm is concerned. Um, love the fastball, love the slider. His control has improved. I think he's, you know, he's this close to be 
being an elite pitcher, and I think he should be drafted that way next year. I'd be happy to have him as my number two pitcher next year. It was a big improvement so far this year in his walk rate uh, from 3.2% the last couple of years down to 2.4% this year. And it may not sound like a lot, but if you think about it in percentage terms, it's like a 25% improvement from 3.2 to 2.4, and that's a big gain. 3.2 is not bad in the first place, but 2.4 is definitely elite. Uh, Zach Greinke is not a young pitcher, but he had a real rebound this year as well. How real is that for you? Exactly. That's what he is. I mean, he's halfway between what he was two years ago and what he was last year. I mean, he's actually a little bit better than that. But since he pitches in Arizona, he's going to—you know—his numbers are going to be a little, um, a little worse than they should be in terms of his true ability. But uh, again, a perfectly fine number two pitcher, and he's durable too. It seems like fantasy experts have been waiting all year for Gio Gonzalez to fall apart. Gene, I can't tell you how many, uh, when I was doing thumbs up, thumbs down earlier in the season, we got to the National League pitcher thumbs down. I had a lot of guys saying, Gio Gonzalez is not for real. Gio Gonzalez is going to fall apart. Gio Gonzalez can't keep it up. And they're all still waiting for him to flop. Uh, How soon till we should start believing? I don't know. I'm going to say to you, I think Gio Gonzalez is going to fall apart. Um, he's pretty good, you know. Again, he's on a really good team, and that I think that's making him look a little bit better than he is. But his control is, is half a walk worse than it was um, last year. His strikeout rate is down from last year. Um, let's give him points for being craftier as he's getting older. But uh, I mean, I don't see anything elite about him. Um, and therefore, even this year, I, I think that he's going to come down off the, the pinnacle that, he, that he's at now. These guys are in the major leagues. You know, they're all even stiff pitchers. When you play DFS, you'll, you'll, you realize this quickly, is that bad pitchers throw good games all the time. Um, and therefore, if you extrapolate that to, well, he's not a bad pitcher, he's a pretty good pitcher. Um, he can have a run like this, especially when he's on a really good team. But I, you just can't bet on it to repeat. Could it be he's just figuring something out because of that craftiness that oh, you mentioned? He has uh, done very well in the quality starts per start kind of ratio from 16 out of 32 last year up to 20 out of 25 this year. That's a big gain. But all the skills, as you say, are down. Across the board, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, I mean, it is possible. You know, this is baseball and things inexplicable things happen. Um but I think that most of his success is, uh, you know, his line drive rate has really improved. Um, and I don't think that that's really sustainable. I mean, to me, that's, I think that's just a little fluky-ish thing. Um, so I'm not going to, I can't bet on it to repeat unless I see something that tells me, okay, this is what it is. It's not showing up in the stats, but, but here it is. Um, but I haven't seen that, so... I'm, I'm going to stick to my guns. Fair enough. Uh, moving, on, moving on, a similar story with Irvin Santana, who is supposed to have returned to Earth by now, and he has to some extent, but what are we going to look at for next season with Irvin Santana? Um, I think what he's doing now is pretty much what he is, maybe just a touch over his head. Um, I was never a believer in him, but I think that he also has learned how to pitch a little bit. Um, and his team is better this year, and that's I think that's a reflection of um, 
So I think, yeah, so I think he's going to be pretty much what he is. You know, mid threes ERA, whip a little under 1.2, um, decent but not fantastic strikeouts. Um, uh, a good pitcher, nice filler on a, on a mixed league team. 435 ERA in the second half since the All-Star break is a little worrisome to me. Also, he's 34 years old. Uh, I know that we have to kind of rethink the age curves and so forth these days because of the advances of one kind and another, but gosh, uh, that worries me a, a little bit. Uh, biggest surprise of the year, speaking of older pitchers, Jason Vargas. Any chance this is repeatable? Well, I certainly wouldn't bet on it. I, mean, I like him in a big ballpark, which is where he is, and that helps. Because, I mean, you put him anywhere but Kansas City, and he's going to give up a lot more home runs. I think he's kind of the, uh, in a way, he's the Rick Porcello of, uh, of 2017. Um, no, I am not betting on him to repeat. And if I lose, well, I'll just have to beat them with somebody else. Some pitchers with mid-teens values are young, younger guys uh, been around long enough that we kind of have an understanding of where they are and where they might be going. Robbie Ray, Marcus Stroman, Jimmy Nelson, all in the mid-teens and dollar values at BaseballHQ.com. Of the three, who would you rather have next year? Uh, well, I, I like Robbie Ray and I like Jimmy Nelson, and Marcus Stroman is a good pitcher, a better pitcher in real life than he is in fantasy because he doesn't get that many strikeouts. Um, and it's a tough division to pitch in. Um, I think I would rank him Ray Nelson, but very close there. I, Jimmy Nelson's a guy that I was not a believer in, but he's improved against left-handed batters. I think he's pitching like a, a minor ace, and I think that's going to continue. Robbie Ray has the highest upside, I think, of the three because of his strikeouts. If he gets it a little more together, he could be elite, and therefore that... You know, I, I don't know that he'll be elite. I wouldn't bet on him being elite, but um, he's got a chance to be elite, and there, therefore he would rank number one on that list for me. Looking at a group of young sub-$10 guys this year, uh, Jose Barrios, Alex Cobb, Danny Duffy, Jordan Montgomery, and Zach Davies. Uh, take your pick of one of those guys or more if you want. Well, I think Davies, uh, Duffy is in another class than those other guys. I think he's a... He's a ahead of those guys. He's another guy who's going to pitch like a minor ace, I think, for several more years. Uh, of the other ones, um, Berrios is at the top of the list. Um, he's, his control has really improved this year. I think he's got a little little bit more to learn. Um, whether he learns it or not, I don't know, but I would take him as a number four starter. Jordan Montgomery I would like more if he was in the National League pitcher's park, uh, but I think he's pretty good. Um, Alex Cobb, I don't think he's been the same um, since he got hurt. Uh, maybe he can change it, uh, but he's flyer material for me. And same with Zach Davies, uh, although he's a good pitcher, but he doesn't strike anybody out. And so, you know, uh, using him on a fantasy team, I would he would be a guy that I would put in, put him in two start weeks and get him out of there. Otherwise, because I think, you know, with the, with the lack of strikeouts, he's not he's not a real asset full time. Any other pitchers we should be thinking about for 2018, Gene? Yeah. Um, I love Luis Castillo on the Reds. I mean, he's coming up, he's pitching for a bad team, and he's pitching really well. He's making good hitters look bad. Um, you know, I don't want to inflate his value. I don't want to overhype him, but I think he's got a chance to be elite. Um, I also think Dylan Bundy is coming into his own. He's been pitching in really tough circumstances this year, and 
and doing well. Um, and he's managed to stay on the mound, which, of course, was always his problem. So those two guys, yes, you know, as a number four starting pitcher, which is where I think they'll be available next year, I think they're great picks there. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, talking about players with Gene McCaffrey. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host. And Gene, uh, let's talk about uh, a topic that uh, you you like talking about. I know the idea of last year's bums, and a lot of times last year's bums are this year's heroes because they get undervalued. Let's start with some hitters who are having awful seasons. Uh, in Kansas City, Alex Gordon used to be the most reliable guy you could come across, and this year he's just been terrible. So what do we think for next year? Where do you, where do you draw the, the floor underneath him? Yeah, uh, there is no floor. Um, it's an abyss. <laughs> He's finished. Um, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not going to invest anything to find out. Um, he's just looked terrible this year, and uh, and all year it's been consistent. Um, I, I think he's had it. What about uh, Jonathan Rukoy? We used to think of him as one of the best catchers in the league. After this year, we're going to obviously have to recalibrate that expectation. Where does Rukoy fit on your list of catchers for next season? Well, right now I'd probably have him about six or seven. Um, I think what we should do is watch the, you know, I think he's been playing hurt this year. He's missed a little time here and there. Um, Now he's on the Rockies, and of course that's a, if he doesn't finish strong, um, he'll probably drop a little further on my list. But if he does finish strong, which I kind of expect him to do, um, I think he'll be back in a little bit of an opportunity next year. Although, if he's on the Rockies, he's not going to be any kind of bargain. So, um, you know, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens with his finish. Um, I'm less inclined. I don't think he's finished at all. I think he should be back to his to his usual moderate power, tons of doubles, good batting average, um, as long as he was playing hurt this year, which I think he has been. Several other disappointing older catchers, and I'm wondering if you think any of them might be last year's bum when we look at him next year. Russell Martin, Brian McCann, Matt Wieters all struggling this year. Yeah, I, Russell Martin I think has about had it. Uh, McCann will probably bounce back a little bit, uh, but I wouldn't, go, I wouldn't go overboard for him. Matt Wieters, I, I mean, gee, I remember when he was expected to vie with uh, Buster Posey, you know, not that long ago, and he just hasn't done it. And I can't figure it out. I mean, I watch him and I say, boy, he looks like a hitter. He's a switch hitter. He, you know, he should be better than he is, but he's not. Um, I guess I guess that gives him last year's bums potential, but he, but he hasn't really done any, enough to to be considered a big come down off. Uh, off what he was supposed to be, uh, I don't know. I, I guess I take him as my second catcher, um, but I wouldn't do it on all my teams. You know, I'd take a little shot with him, but because he should be better than he is, but he hasn't been. Yeah, that's the thing about Matt Wieters is we we can't really say that he's been a real disappointment this year because he's never been whatever the opposite of a delight in any previous season. He's had you know okay years, but he's never had. Really tremendous years, certainly nothing like we've expected. Uh, Michael Franco, Gene, and uh, Hunter Renfro were quite heavily touted coming into this year, and they're both really barely replacement-level players this year. What's your outlook for 2018 for Franco and Renfro? Franco is swinging at everything. I mean, he's just, he needs to get it together, and I wouldn't bet any money that he does, although it's possible. I mean, there's no question he's got talent. Um, 
but I don't like his approach. I don't like the way he's, um, he, he concedes nothing. He doesn't seem to be learning anything, and that's, I don't like that. Hunter Redfro, you know, he hasn't, this is his first real year. Uh, I'm prepared to give him a little bit of a buy. I don't think he's going to be expensive next year. Um, worth a shot. I mean, still got real power. Um, obviously, there are holes in his game. Um, but as long as he doesn't cost too much, I think he's worth a flyer, and there's still a, a better chance that he's going to develop, I think. Before we move on, to uh, there's a couple other players I'd like to ask you about, but I, I want to ask you something more general about this whole idea of last year's bums. Are we better off looking for them amongst uh, touted rookies who flop or amongst established players who have big dips? Generally speaking, established players who have dips because it's often injury-related um, and often it's just luck. Um, so, you know, with a guy who hasn't established anything, he, he's not a true last year's bum, at least, is how I, at least the way I define it. Um, with those guys, it's a question of, well, will, will he develop? Will, will the holes in this game that have been exposed, um, will he do something to close them? And um, it's possible. Um, with, it's possible with any player. Um, but when you, when you see a bad approach, it's that much less likely. How about the Polancos, Jorge and Gregory, both disappointments this year? Yeah, well, Jorge, I think, is a, sort of an average kind of player, um, filler type, you know, for a few steals. Um, Gregory, I had high expectations for, but, you know, he's been on the DL, I think, six times this year. I mean, hamstrings, ankle, this, that, and the other thing. Um, when I watched him play, he's definitely not hustling, although that might not be his fault. He may be under orders because of the leg injuries, but he doesn't look like he's... Um, he hasn't gone anywhere this year. He's got last year's bumps potential. I'm not saying that he doesn't, um, but I'm not going to overpay for it. I mean, he's still got the power-speed combo. It should manifest itself. Um, I'm willing to take a chance on him to a certain extent, but you know, as far as taking him in the fifth round, which I think is where he went this year, um, I will not do that again. And finally, how about perhaps the biggest flopperoo of 2017? Future Hall of Famer Miguel Cabrera has just been awful. Yeah, well, he has definitely been playing hurt. Um, the question is, now that he's getting older, is it going to be a chronic thing? Uh, um, I'm more, much more inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt because he is a Hall of Famer. And they don't usually fall apart. I mean, they're very capable of having big years into their late 30s. And with his price dropping next year, I'm kind of, you know, I, I'm, I will on at least one team cross my fingers and take a shot with him because he is what he is. You know, he's still, he's still Miguel Cabrera, I think. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey, the fantasy baseball wise guy. And uh, last year's bums also include pitchers. But before we get into particular individuals, this was not a good year, Gene, for flyballers. You and I have talked about this in the past that they're uh, underrepresented amongst guys we should be looking at. But as of Tuesday's games, we have six starters with 100 innings and flyball percentages of 47% or higher. Only Dan Straley has an ERA under four. My favorite, Marco Estrada, Jarrell Cotton, a, a touted rookie, over five. And glancing at the elevated home run numbers, this appears to be an outcome of juice ball as well, turning cans of corn into home runs, which is a real problem for flyball pitchers. Do we need to reassess these top flyball type guys, and if so, how? 
Well, put that way, I mean, the conclusion seems inescapable, but um, Max Scherzer has a 46% fly ball rate. Um, Chris Sale is an extreme fly ball pitcher. Um, on the other side of that, if you look at the most extreme ground ball pitchers, you get Clayton Richard, Jaime Garcia, and Mike Leake. Um, so one of the things that we've mentioned before is that by itself, ground ball or fly ball tendencies don't really mean anything. It's only in combination with other things that they can give us an advantage. Um, I'm not really changing my uh, my view on fly ball pitchers. I don't want them in a bandbox ballpark. Um, I'd really like to have a good defensive outfield behind them. Um, but Jason Vargas, who we were just talked about, also an extreme fly ball pitchers. I think there's probably a minor adjustment should be made, um, but they always gave up more home runs than the other guys. The key with those guys is are the home runs that they get, that they're giving up solo home runs. You know, if they're walking a lot of guys, forget it. You don't want to go anywhere near the guy. But if he's got really good control, um, and especially if he's inducing a, a, his fair share of infield pop-ups, um, I think that they're you know let let people be. Um, more concerned and, and let them downgrade them. But if if I think the guy is good enough, I'm still going to go for him. Well, let's look at Marco Estrada in particular. He's got all the all the seemingly all the attributes we should be looking for. He's got the high fly ball percentage. It's up around fifty percent, forty nine as we speak. I think his uh, infield fly ball rate is uh, as usual, uh, well above the norm. And we I think we've established that that's a skill rather than just a, a random outcome. And his strikeout rate is up. He's over a strikeout per inning. The, the caveat here is that he's walking a lot more guys, and of course that means the, the home runs that he's giving up, there's a lot more of those as well. And as you say, there's that means that they're going to be two and three run homers rather than solos. So how does this all play for next year? When you're looking at Marco Estrada, how are you going to adjust your valuations? Um, I'm going to take a shot with him late. Um, he's he's going to be available late. Um, I think he's a Babbitt guy. I mean, you look at two... The last several years, 262, 257, 216, 234, and this year, 310. Um, with a fly ball pitcher, a 310 BABIP is bad luck. And, you know, as long as he, his control, yes, I mean, maybe he's nibbling a little bit more, um, that should be corrected. But he's still striking out a batter in inning, and I'm going to take a shot with him late. How about the bounce pack prospects for someone with big expectations coming into the season? Uh, the A's, Sean Manaya, we all had high hopes for him. Uh, he's certainly flashed some signs, but overall it hasn't been that great. Uh, how do you value Sean Manaya looking ahead? Well, I want to see how he finishes because his velocity is down from when it was early in the season, and that's kind of ominous, but it, it might not be conclusive. So I want to see how he finishes, and that, so I'm going to, I'm going to take a pass on that question until I see what his September looks like. Johnny Cueto, when guys look at that uh, name on their draft sheet in 2017, I'm sure they weren't expecting a 450 ERA and a 140 whip for this year and probably paid for significantly better and didn't get it. What should we be willing to pay for Johnny Cueto next year? Is he a last year's bum? Mm, I would say no. Uh, I know you're old enough to remember Joaquin Andujar. Oh yeah, um, and Cueto always reminded me a lot of Joaquin Andujar, and he went fast when he went. I think Cueto will too. I mean, those numbers that he's putting up this year are even more ominous 
considering that he's pitching in San Francisco. Yes, the team is bad, but they still have a pretty good defense, and it's really hard to hit the ball out of there. Um, I think there's a real drop-off in his skill level, and I want no part of him next year. Lots of touting also for Atlanta right-hander Julio Tehran, but he's provided an ERA over 5 and a whip over 140 as well. Uh, at what price point next year are you going to be out of the Tehran bidding? Uh, pretty early. Um, I was just looking at the park factors, and I was shocked to see that the new Atlanta park is not apparently hitter-friendly, because it sure looks hitter-friendly to me. Um, and he's been a, a, a prime... What's the opposite of beneficiary? Sufferer. Uh, but he, yeah, he gives up a lot of home runs, and I don't think that's going to stop. Um, so I don't. I'm not. I'm really skeptical about Tehran, and uh, there are a lot of other guys that I'll take a shot with first. For instance, I'll take Luis Castillo next year before I'll take Julio Tehran, and that will not happen in, uh, in draft boards across the nation. The other thing about Tehran, when I look at him, walks are up, strikeouts are down, and that also is a worry. But would you feel any more comfortable about Tehran if he were to be moved along to a more uh, friendly pitcher's park? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I, I would go from I want no part of him to, well, I'll take him on the back end. But I'm not going to get him there, so um, I don't think I'm going to have him next year. I think that there's going to be a little bit of residual. You know, I think people, if they have expectations for a guy and they're unfulfilled, um, sometimes a lot of people like to double down on the guy, and um, I'm not going to do that with him unless, you know, unless they, you know, maybe if he went to San Francisco or something like that, pot San Diego, you know. But other than that, he's flyer material for me. Former top prospect Jamison Tyon is having a poor year, but he also had an injury and testicular cancer, so uh, the double whammy there. How much of a pass does he get because of these uh, outside uh, influences? Well, I, I think pretty much a complete pass, considering the fact that he has pitched several really good games this year. He's just been erratic. Um, you know, growing pains, that's that's what we should really expect with all these guys. Um and so given the injuries, um, I'm definitely inclined to give him a complete buy and and would take him, you know, as a reasonable speculation, you know, relying on him for a little bit, you know, maybe a number four type starting pitcher, preferably a five, but I'd, I'll certainly take him as a four. I was reading expert articles uh, before the All-Star break urging all of us to buy Kevin Gausman. And uh, after the All-Star break, I was reading expert articles encouraging us to buy Kevin Gausman. Still, 525 ERA, 162 whip, nothing's going right. What do you think about Gausman for next year? Well, you know, we had a great little run there for uh, of about four starts after the All-Star break. I think he's got a world of talent. Um, his circumstances are really tough. Uh, he's a going to be home run vulnerable. Um, I would take him, um, again, he's the guy that I want to see how he finishes. Because, you know, after those four great starts uh, after the All-Star break, that he got hit a little bit in the last couple of starts. And so let's see how he rebounds from that. And um, the jury is still out on Gosman as far as I'm concerned. And finally, you mentioned Rick Porcello earlier. He's had a uh, terrible season, mostly because of 
truly horrendous luck. His strand rate has skyrocketed, his hit rate is way up. Uh, uh, I should say his strand rate is way down and his hit rate is way up. This is a, a really unlucky year for Rick Porcello, which maybe is just balancing what was, let's be honest, a pretty lucky year last year when he won the Cy Young. How much would you be willing to bet on Rick Porcello in 2018 that he straightens everything out? Well, I think that his year last year was, I don't know if I've ever been more surprised by a year that he threw up last year. Um, I don't think he's as bad as he's pitching this year, but when you look at his career, when it's all said and done, I think you're going to see that last year was the absolute clear outlier, and that he's really about a, you know, his ERA shouldn't be four and a half, but it should be four, is what is what I think about Rick Porcello. Any other pitchers you want to mention as potential uh, next year's, last year's bums? Well, not last year's bums, but I... Um, Aaron Nola has been a little erratic this year, but I think that he's um, he's on the way up. I think he's turned a corner. We talked about Jimmy Nelson before. Again, he's not a, he's having a pretty good year, but I think he's also for real. So I think that those are two guys that should be on everybody's radar as guys who will really be helping us next year. And before I let you go, Gene, I was wondering if there's anything that has happened this year in the bigger picture major league environment that might make you change some of your strategic thinking about next year's drafts um not really other than the fact that the uh, the drafts don't matter that much anymore because of all the injuries i mean the key to winning fantasy baseball now is in-season play um and i regret to say it because i'm not really that good at it um I, I tend to miss things because of my life um the other thing is, is that I, um, the reason I had a uh, an off year last year is because I didn't execute my my draft strategy. I mean, my when I went into Tower Wars, my thinking was, I'm in a mixed league. I want to get the guy with the most power, the guy with the most speed, the guy with the best on base percentage, the best pitcher, and maybe extend that to the best closer. Although that's not, you could never figure that out. It's it's incalculable. Um, and I went off that strategy. Um, I did get the guy with the most power, Stanton. I did get the guy with the most speed, Billy Hamilton. But when it came time to bid $44 for Joey Votto, who I really wanted, I backed off. And I said, I'm going to turn him into two guys, which I did. Only those two guys were Cespedes and Carlos Gonzalez, who've put my team in the tank this year. You know, not super expensive, but $25 players who have not, delivered what they were supposed to deliver had i gone for that with Votto, and in a mixed league you know you're going to get decent players for a buck at the end you know or two three four dollars so i i did not execute that and then the other thing that i did was i was going to get kershaw and i decided to split him into two pitchers and those two pitchers were carlos martinez and justin verlander martinez has been fine but verlander has not and so i'm going to I'm going to try to do the same thing next year, only I'm going to do it. Gene, thanks a million for helping us out this week. I really look forward to talking with you again. Uh, see you in Arizona, of course, at First Pitch Arizona in November. And uh, where can our listeners uh, find out more from Gene McCaffrey? Well, I'll be posting on wiseguybaseball.com since I am planning on doing a full 2018 Wise Guy Baseball. I'm already working on it so that I can make sure that I have enough time. Yes, I'm looking forward to seeing you in Arizona. And if any of the listeners haven't been there and are contemplating doing it, 
please do yourself a favor. Sign up and go. It's a fantastic time. A lot of great people. You will learn a lot. And if you do, make sure you find Gene, make sure you find me, and uh, come up and say, I heard you guys on Baseball HQ Radio, and uh, we'll let you buy us a beer. Yeah, we're, we're kind of friendly when someone's trying to buy us a beer. Absolutely. Gene, thanks again. I really do appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Always a pleasure, Patrick. Thank you. Gene McCaffrey writes at his site, wiseguybaseball.com, and he promises to have a 2018 edition of the Wise Guy Baseball Annual in time for next season. It's time in our show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Playing Time Tomorrow, Brian Slack looks at the National League West and all those outfielders. In Facts and Flukes, former Baseball HQ Radio commentator Brandon Cruz wonders if we should officially be worried by Jose Bautista, intrigued by Carlos Rodon, concerned by Colin McHugh, excited by Austin Jackson, and satisfied by Wilson Ramos. And in minor league call-ups, White Sox right-hander Lucas Giolito, Detroit right-hander Zach Renninger, Atlanta left-hander A.J. Minter, and all the other prospects who've been called up to the show of late. And that's just a tiny sampling of all the great content at BaseballHQ.com, and it's why we say with confidence, it's the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's our playing time comment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing those at-bats or innings. And here with a look at the potential call-ups of Ronald Acuna and J.P. Crawford is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. We'll take another look this week at some more potential September call-ups, and this time we'll hit the NL East, where Greg Pyron recently covered the call-up potential of Ronald Acuna and J.P. Crawford in his Playing Time Tomorrow column. Acuna was the headliner, and for good reason. His stock has risen more than any prospect in the game this season, which started at single-A Florida, up through double-A, and he's now at triple-A Gwinnett. Acuna has hit at every single level with promising skills to boot. He's got a total of 20 home runs and 37 steals to go along with an impressive 347 batting average, 411 OBP, and over 1,000 OPS and 147 at-bats at triple-A. We ranked Acuna the number eight overall fantasy prospect in our midseason prospect update, and it wouldn't surprise me at all to see him in the top three in this year's minor league baseball forecaster. Rumors are heating up that Acuna's rise might just take him to Atlanta in September, even though he's just 19 years old. And if that happens, you need to jump on Acuna no matter what your league format. There's always risk with rookie call-ups, but Acuna could be a big difference maker down the stretch. And now over to Philly, where Greg noted that top-hitting prospect, J.P. Crawford, is looking likely to get the call in September. Crawford made our top 30 in our midseason update, but he was one of the biggest fallers of the group as he started the year in the top 10. Crawford struggled with the bat this year. He's hitting just 240 with 13 homers and 4 steals at AAA Lehigh Valley. But the plate skills have been decent. Crawford's getting on base at a 344 clip. So while Crawford's stock might be down from a numbers perspective, our own GM Brent Hershey recently caught a glimpse of him in August and came away impressed. Brent noted on Twitter that Crawford, quote, looked like a different player from when I saw him in June. Still patient, but attacking, hitting the ball hard. 
With Philly out of the race, they're likely to call up Crawford in September, and he might be starting to regain that shine as a deep league flyer. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Boston outfielder Bryce Brents and Cubs relief pitcher Dylan Maples. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Sometimes you can't keep a good man down, nor should you. This week's edition of Frequent Flyers will profile two players worthy of September call-ups, beginning with 28-year-old Boston Red Sox left fielder Bryce Brents, who currently leads the AAA International League in home runs. Experiencing a breakout year, Bryce Brents is making a strong case for a September call-up by tying his career-high 30 home run mark set back in 2011, his first full professional baseball season. Despite bagging 287 with one home run and 34 major league games throughout his career, Bryce Brents has often been overlooked in Beantown. And let's face it, with Andrew Benatendi, Chris Young, Brock Holt, and even Eduardo Nunez capable of manning left field for Boston, Bryce Brents' playing time prospects seem diminished. That's why Bryce Brents, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be long shots, who may be worth the flyer if they are still available in your league. But... Consider this, Bryce Brents has produced 30 home runs this season after hitting only 5 home runs total in 2016. Plus, did we mention that Bryce Brents just won the AAA home run derby? So what's changed? Bryce Brents has reportedly made some slight adjustments to his swing, which have helped him regain his timing and his power stroke, and the results have been exceptional. Just like the results of our second frequent flyer, Chicago Cubs 25-year-old reliever Dylan Maples, who was just promoted to AAA Iowa on July 17th. So far, through three levels of the minors in 2017, 50 minor league relief appearances to be exact, righty Dylan Maples has struck out 98 batters in 61 innings. That translates to a dominance rate of 14 strikeouts per nine, or double a seven strikeouts per nine benchmark that we use at BaseballHQ.com to identify baseball's best pitchers. In addition, Dill Maple's command ratio of 2.7 strikeouts to walks in 2017 is a pretty good indicator of long-term success, according to our benchmarks. Remember, we highly recommend acquiring closers, or other bullpen arms, with a command ratio of at least 2.5 strikeouts to walks, and Dill Maple's currently meets and exceeds that requirement. Although Dill Maples flashes a fastball that can reach triple digits, his wipeout slider is gaining a lot of attention in baseball circles. Still, he'll need to improve his location somewhat to be successful at the major league level. But, more importantly, Dill Maples seems to be mastering the mental game on the mound, which Greg Maddox once described as having a short-term memory and a bulletproof confidence. Two qualities that you may find in both. Bryce Brents and Dylan Maples, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now our weekend pitcher matchups report. 
We rate matchups on a scale centered on zero, with ratings of plus one or better considered strong bets for you to start, and ratings of minus one or worse as strong bets to sit. Between the ones are the wild card range, toss-ups you'll have to consider based on your own risk appetite. With a look at this weekend's matchups, including Aaron Nola and Zach Davies, here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Not one pitcher has a recommended start matchup rating this weekend, so there should be some happy days ahead for your hitters. Six teams have pairs of recommended sit matchup ratings for their Saturday and Sunday starters. That should make your hitters happy if they're on the Boston Red Sox, the Detroit Tigers, the Chicago White Sox, the Houston Astros, the New York Yankees, or the New York Mets. The Mets and the Nationals have a doubleheader in D.C. this Sunday, and Washington's pair of recommended sit starters both pitch then. So Sunday is your day of Mets. Philadelphia Phillies 24-year-old right-hander Aaron Nola is closest to a recommended start matchup rating this weekend with an 0-93. And he's our marquee matchup man. Nola is at home Sunday to face the Chicago Cubs 38-year-old right-hander John Lackey, who has a matchup rating of minus 109. In the August 21 USA Today Power Rankings, the Phils remain dead last at number 30, while the Cubs climb two spots to number 6. Chicago is five games over 500 on the road. Philadelphia has the Majors' second-worst record at home. Against right-handers, the Cubs have won one more game than they've lost, and the Phillies have lost an MLB-worst 31 games more than they've won. Versus teams with losing records, the Cubs have an MLB fifth-best record of 42-27. and 27. Versus teams with winning records, the Phillies have an MLB-worst record of 17-45. and 45. Given the Cubs' extreme advantage over the Phillies, it's a miracle that Nola has a matchup rating of 093. But he's earned it. BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Buyer's Guide columnist Stephen Nickran pointed out on August 18 that NOLA has some of the best home numbers in Major League Baseball, compiling a remarkable BPV of 153. NOLA's had seven starts at home since June 22. Six have been PQS dominant. Overall, NOLA has a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 43% dominant to 19% disaster. This season, Nola is showing career bests in ERA, batter's face per game, opponents on base average, first pitch strike rate, swing strike rate, velocity, and fantasy earnings. The only knock on Nola is that he's thrown a career-high 131 innings. Was the season-high seven earned runs Nola allowed at home against Miami in his last start a sign of fatigue? Well, four of those earned runs came in the seventh inning, capped by a Giancarlo Stanton home run. That may be from fatigue, or it may just be running into a buzzsaw. It's too soon to tell. The Cubs have not faced Nola in the past two seasons, and that could work in his favor. In that same August 18 Pitcher Buyer's Guide pointing out Nola's elite BPV at home, BaseballHQ.com analyst Stephen Nickran noted that John Lackey has a road BPV of only 65. That's the main reason Lackey has a matchup rating of minus 109 against the worst team in Major League Baseball. The matchup rating differential of 202 favors our marquee matchup man, and there's no better bet this weekend than Aaron Nola on Sunday. Our Saturday surprise is another 24-year-old right-hander. It is surprising when a 14-game winner has a recommended sit matchup rating of minus 138. But Zach Davies of the Milwaukee Brewers has the unenviable task of facing the Dodgers in L.A., where they've lost only 14 games all year. They've won 51 in Dodger Stadium and are 37 games above 500 at home. That's the best home record in the majors. What's more, LA has the best run differential, the best record against winning teams, and the best record versus right-handers. 
In the August 21 USA Today Power Rankings, the Dodgers are number one, as usual, and the Brewers are number 10. Milwaukee scores about as many runs as it allows. On the road, the Brew Crew wins about as many games as they lose, and against teams with winning records, the Brewers have lost six games more than they've won. The Dodgers are on a run that ranks with the best in Major League history, but even if he is overmatched this Saturday, let's see if Zach Davies deserves that recommended sit matchup rating of minus 138. Only one pitcher has more wins than Davies this season, and that's the Dodgers' Clayton Kershaw. Davies has won three more games this season than he did last year when he had two more starts. Yet he's earned his fantasy owners in 5x5 leagues the exact same $8 in 2017 as in 2016. Davies is a poster boy for an old adage that loyal listeners to Baseball HQ Radio have heard and subscribers to BaseballHQ.com have read for many years. Don't chase wins. Skills-wise, Davies has taken steps back in expected ERA, dominance, or strikeouts per nine, control, or walks per nine, and command, or strikeouts per walk. His first pitch strike rate has dropped below the league average of 60%, and his base performance value has dropped from a solid 100 last season to 56 this year. After posting a decent PQS dominant-to-disaster ratio of 25% dominant-to-29% disaster in 2016, Davies has put up a ratio of 8% dominant-to-50% disaster in 2017. Don't be surprised if the high-flying Dodgers do in Davies on Saturday. Check our site to get updated matchup information every morning. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ analyst who has his weekend pitcher matchups report here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I'd like to talk about moving the decimals. On the August 11th edition of the Baseball HQ Radio podcast, this very show, Todd Zola and I got into an energetic discussion of how easy it is to gain points in the ratio categories, even this late in the season. His position was that it can be done, and it might be easier than you think. My position was that it's not that easy because after 20 weeks, the ratio categories have established some pretty huge denominators. Now, because Todd is smarter than me, the difference of opinion worried me. So I checked it out, and as it turns out, we're both right. Let's look at a league where a fantasy team gets 50 innings per week. That's 1,300 innings in a year. Pretty normal for 5x5 leagues that count strikeouts because there's more focus on starters and more of them are rostered. After six 50-inning weeks, the team has 300 innings. And if you don't understand why, your math is even more elementary than mine. And perhaps you should consider another hobby. Anyway, let's say the team has allowed 140 earned runs and the owner calculates nothing much will change with his roster and that his projected ERA won't change from its current 420. The owner wants to bring that projected ERA down to 395 because historically in his league, that will get him the points he needs in the category. Now, he still has a 1,000 future innings to work with, and to finish at his 395 target, he needs to get a 388 ERA for those 1,000 innings remaining. Of course, a 3.88 ERA might already be something of a big ask for a team whose staff so far has been a third of a run worse than that. But the owner has multiple pathways to success. He might have a good starter whose ERA to date has been hammered by one bad outing, and he can probably be counted on, as much as any pitcher can be counted on, to get back to form. The owner might have a surplus in other categories, so he could trade for a solid ERA performer. Or he might have a top starter coming back from the DL who will be able to replace his iffy replacement. 
And in the latter two cases, this owner will get an addition by subtraction benefit just by getting rid of the bad innings from that worst pitcher. Dropping a starter projected to 140 innings at 4.80 ERA will lower the team ERA by 7 points or so. Adding a 350 starter in his place will cut it even further. In short, this owner will have options because he has time to work with. But if he starts the process seven weeks later, just seven weeks at the All-Star break, those options have really shrunk. Now he only has 650 innings left. And because of the curse of the oversized denominator, also the title of the worst Hardy Boys mystery ever, he needs a 371 ERA in those innings. And 371 free agent starters are about as common as reasonably priced ballpark nachos. Now at 20 weeks, this owner needs 300 innings, and that means he needs to get a 246 ERA over that period. Now his paths, you can see, are greatly restricted. In fact, so restricted as to be impossible. Swapping a 350 starter to replace that 450 stiff, well, now he only gets four extra ERA points. But these calculations rely on a few assumptions that are not going to be true in all or even most instances. The first such assumption is that the team needs to move by a full 25 points from 420 to 395, but lots of leagues will have ERA points available for much smaller gains. To test the numbers in a real-world case, I projected a 15-team mixed experts league and then picked a team at random from that league. This team's projected ERA was 4205, not far from the earlier example, and he was going to get 7 points in the ERA category. But instead of a projected target of 395, which would have jumped this team all the way to 14 points, I simply tested what would happen if he'd swapped out his worst starter, Zach Davies, and added Michael Givens of Baltimore, a top quality reliever from the league's free agent pool. Davies' projection was 41 innings left at 417 pace. Givens projected 17 innings left, but at a 317 pace. As a result, the team projected ERA fell to 39.85 and a nice four-point gain in the category. Even more impressive, the team's projected whip fell from 13.01 to 11.78, gaining the team a terrific eight points there. To be sure, the ratio gains were offset by losses in the counting stats, a couple of points in wins and one in strikeouts, but the net was still plus nine, which would have been good for a jump of five spots in the overall. Todd was right. It works. But, a lot of this excellent outcome again depended on factors not universally applicable. The ERA and WHIP standings gaps were quite favorable, especially the tight bunching of WHIP. Also, a net plus 9 will not always move a team 5 spots in the overall standings. In my league, 9 points would barely jump me 2 spots. And the strikeout gaps were also favorable, in that Givens K's and his limited innings were not that far short of Davies K's, and the gap was again quite favorable. Another hugely important factor here was that the league used for the example was a mixed 15, because such a league has an enormous free agent pool, especially for pitchers, and doubly especially for the Lima-style relievers you need to pick from. Sure enough, I tested this in a single league format, and it didn't work nearly as well. In this instance, I used my own team in Tout American League, where I project to a 43.77 ERA worth four points in the category, and a 13.26 whip that'll get me five. I first wondered what might happen if I dropped my worst projected ERA and whip starter, Marco Estrada, a 4.600 ERA, 1378 whip, 
and instead acquired the best available free agent reliever in the pool, Danny Barnes of Toronto, 32-14 and one even. The result was, not much happened, and I saw no progress in the standings. My final decimals would drop a little bit to 43.55 and 13.21, improving me by about 22 ERA points and 005 whip points. Not surprisingly, neither of these gains was big enough to move me in the projected standings. In fact, it wasn't even close. At the same time, I stayed put in wins because the HQ projection machine seems to be taking into account that every time Estrada pitches, the Blue Jays' offense takes the night off and the bullpen mistakes the occasion for batting practice but I did lose a couple of spots in the strikeouts category. Just to see, I also checked what would happen if I dropped all my starters and replaced them with Lima relievers. Again, I still didn't move in the decimals and I lost even more ground in strikeouts and wins. One last issue. With six weeks left in the season, any projection is prone to huge variability and relief pitchers may be the most variable of all because of their limited innings. When I did the research for this report, teams had about 40 games left in the season. Based on the 2016-17 game logs, in 40 Orioles games, Michael Givens appears about 18 times. So with 40 games left in this season, I checked Givens' ERA and whip for all of the 18 appearance spans he's had this season to find out how much variation there is in the spans. It turns out that acquiring Givens for 18 consecutive appearances could get an owner an 0.479 ERA and an 0.532 whip. That was Givens' cumulative line from June 17th through August 2nd. On the other hand, that owner might also get a 49.32 ERA and a 16.44, a bomb that Givens dropped on his owners from April 26th through June 6th. In fact, it'll probably be something in between. So, the first lesson in all of this is that time is of the essence. When I was talking with Todd, I made the point about the large denominators, but I didn't even think to mention the reinforcing effect of having so little time left to move the ratio, so few innings. Unfortunately, it's harder earlier in the season to know where you and the league stand in the categories, so it makes it tougher to make decisions about a move. Also, league format really matters. Mixed leagues have much deeper free agent pools, especially in those Lima-type non-closers who can help a team in the decimals. In single league formats, those top Lima guys are almost always long gone by this point. They've been drafted, they were reserved, or they've been picked up already to replace injured pitchers. But the main lesson is that anyone looking for a category bump in the decimals needs to start by projecting the league and seeing how big the potential gains are, how wide the category gaps are, and how much you can really move. Like the man said, you gotta do the math. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 25th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 34 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of Fantasy Baseball. Gene's an excellent baseball analyst and a very funny writer. I'm really looking forward to the Wise Guy Baseball for 2018. And of course, he's a regular and favorite guest here at Baseball HQ Radio. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our playing time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our frequent flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our pitcher matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. 
Masternotes commentator, and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt or send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It helps us attract new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our feature guest expert will be Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs.com. That's Jeff Zimmerman on the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.